Hi, welcome to episode 17 of our podcast. I'm Alex, one half of The Sober Experiment. And I'm Lisa, the other half. I feel rubbish. <laughs> you look a bit rubbish. I know, I'm so glad that we're not actually doing a webcast. <laughs> <laughs> you look all right, though, to say you've not had a good week. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Do you know what? This is one of the worst weeks of my life. Uh, not worse, no, more stressful weeks of my life. Oh, Alex, it is a stressful week for you. And I know, right, and I really want to help you. <laughs> but it's actually been the most stressful week of my life ever too. <laughs> we don't ever have a rubbish week together, do we? No, and it's been, I know it's been bad for you. And it's definitely been bad for me. It has been awful for you. And you know what's worse? I've been thinking... I really want to be there for you, but I just can't. I know, and I can't be there for you. <laughs> and then we had that thing, didn't we, where we phoned each other the other day, and I was like, I'm having a rubbish day, and he was like, I'm having a rubbish day, and we were like, but I want to be there for you. I want to be there for you. And then that song, what came on? Oh, my God, You're My Best Friend came on while we were actually WhatsApping each other, oh and no. it was like, oh! It was so nice. It made me cry like many other things that have made me cry this week. You know what, though? It's not often that we ever, ever go through rough times and not often we ever go through rough times at the same time. There's normally always one of us to pull the other out. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, what a shit week. <laughs> but on a plus, we're here and we're doing a podcast today. Yes, we are. And we've got somebody coming on called Christy Smith. And she's actually somebody who we follow on Instagram and she follows us back. Um, and she does outreach support for addicts. So it's going to be really interesting to hear, like, you know, the severe side of things because she was in recovery for a while. She is in recovery. She has been for a long time. So let's hear from her. Yes. Hello, Christy. Hi, Christy. Hi, you started it when I was taking a drink. <laughs> <laughs> we like to catch people unexpectedly. <laughs> yes, I got my uh, Starbucks creamer, so I'm like all set, ready. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> it's lovely to finally get you on because I just want everybody to know this podcast has been so long in the planning for one reason or another. We've been organizing it, canceling it, organizing it, canceling it. So we're so there glad. Was sickness for a while. It was, it's, yeah, it was worth the wait, I promise. <laughs> well, I believe you. So, first of all, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey to sobriety, Christy, please? Um, well, I'm 38. I have been with my husband 20 years. We got together when I was 18. Uh, we have two kids. A Well, my daughter will be 15 in April, and we have a 12-year-old son. Um, through active addiction, we never lost the children. Um, nobody actually knew we were ever in active addiction um, until we came out and told everybody. And it went from, like, parents that everybody was proud of and, you know, more parents should be like you too. Uh, you don't deserve your kids. You are selfish, disgusting people. And they tried everything to take the kids from us. Um, unfortunately, well, luckily for us, but unfortunately for them, all the allegations that they called children's services about weren't true. Um, they'd never actually been to the house that we were at. So they had no idea what was going on. They just went by stereotypes. Um, and children's services immediately closed the case. Um, our kids always came first, even when we were dope sick, when we were high, um, my kids are my life. Uh, they mean everything to me. I stayed home for a very long time and it's a stay at home mom. Um, I work now, now that my kids are older, they don't really need me to stay home. Yeah. Um, we moved from Dayton, Ohio 
to a small town in Gallia County, two and a half hours away from our home, loaded up a um, trunk of what we could fit for me and my husband and the two kids on the back of my sister's car and we drove two and a half hours where my dad lived and we quit heroin and cocaine called Turkey. Um, I was on Suboxone up until two and a half years ago and I have two and a half years, almost two years and seven months of complete abstinence. Um, my husband still does Suboxone, but uh, we, we tried to do completely separate recoveries. Um, this works for me and um, he says it works for him. Uh, I have a completely different opinion about that, but that doesn't yeah. really matter because he doesn't want to hear it. Um, I started taking the, I paid for the courses to get my CDCA, which is a chemical dependency counselor's assistant. So I can be a drug and alcohol counselor. Um, my first test, I got a 90%. I was really excited about it. Oh. Um, we have a recovery Facebook page. We have a lot of people that have reached out to us. Um, I've helped a few people get into detox, get into um, into treatment, um, just making phone calls, really, and just doing the legwork. Um, a lot of people I talk to seem to think that because of what they've done in active addiction that they don't deserve recovery. Um, and so... You really got to try to convince people that they do deserve recovery. It doesn't matter what they've done in their past, you know, that everybody deserves a shot at this. And then they look at you and they're like, well, why are you doing this? You don't even know me. And I'm like, because I have been blessed with a great opportunity to have an amazing recovery. And I feel like everybody deserves the same thing. You know, you might not think you're worth it, but I've been there and I know you are. And, you know, I will be with you every step of the way. If this is what you want then this is what we'll do. Um, and I've had, like the last guy I got into detox into treatment, um, he messages me all the time. And he's at the beginning stages where you're super emotional. Um, so he has a hard time talking to me because he starts crying. Um, you know, he was like, I'd given up on everybody and was trying to die. And just out of the blue, I messaged you. And my life's completely different. You know, you probably saved my life. I'm like, I didn't do anything. I just made some phone calls. Like you did the work, you know, that's on you. You saved your own life. He was like, but it was nice having somebody that believed I could do it mm. because he had just absolutely given up hope. And you find a lot of that. And that's probably the most heartbreaking thing about it is I, I knew I had given up hope, but I also had hit a rock bottom and had a spiritual awakening right before I got clean. Um, and I know not everybody gets that chance to feel that because of their surroundings, but I have love around me. I have my kids and my husband, you know, I had something to fight for. And a lot of these people I talk to don't have that. Their families have pretty much, you know, cut them off and don't want anything to do with them. And everybody they meet obviously is an active addiction as well. And so they feel like they can't trust anybody. And it's just, you know, sometimes you just need that person in your corner. So where, where do you find your strength to actually deal with that? Because obviously you've had your own journey as well and you talked about your rock bottom. So where on earth has that strength come from? Um, just within myself, because I, when I was in active addiction, I could look at normal people. I call them normal yeah. um, because they were people that didn't have to deal with addiction and they could wake up every day and face the day and they were happy and they were healthy. and 
I used to be so angry and so jealous of those people because I couldn't understand like how they were able to face every single day without having to deal with getting high or, you know, even just getting drugs to get well. And um, I used to be really jealous and really angry at those people. Um, I did a lot of in- internal work on myself, um, forgave my abusers from my childhood, which I'm sure we'll get into later. Um, did a lot of letting go of resentments and forgiving people and became just a much healthier version of myself. And part of my recovery and part of what keeps me sober is talking to those people because it reminds me of the feelings I used to have when I was in active addiction. Um, that loneliness and that despair and that helplessness. Um, and I, like I said, thankfully had the support system, you know, yeah, my husband was using too. And when I quit cold Turkey, you know, my kids gave me the strength to get through it. Um, so I was like literally laying on the floor, staring at them, unable to move. Uh, and so I get that strength from within myself because uh, I just firmly believe that the recovery community, if they come together and more people try to do what I'm doing, and instead of dividing the recovery community, actually trying to help the people who really need it, I feel like it's the only way that we're going to get over this, this epidemic of you know addiction. And I say epidemic because you know it's killing people and it's destroying lives and You know, the government likes to say the war on drugs, but they are a big part of why we have this problem. And so without the recovery community, I feel like it's never going to make a difference. So not a lot of people are aware of what I do, but if I'm able to help one person, that's all that matters to me. I don't need the glory. I don't need people to know what I'm doing because I'm not doing it for clout. I'm not doing it for popularity. I'm doing it because it's what helps me. You know, I feel like my recovery would have been a lot easier if I would have had more people outside of like my little isolated family, you know, who helped me. And I had a few people and it without them, I wouldn't have made it. So I know that like you, you truly need just somebody who is not family in your corner, you know, helping you take these steps and reminding you that you're worthy and that you deserve it in order to get through the beginning stages of it and onto a good recovery. And so that's why I do what I do. So what, what led you to addiction in the first place? Do you think, are you okay talking about that? Yeah. Um, I've actually, uh, shared everything pretty much. So there's nothing that's like off limits. Um, I'm willing to talk about just about, anything and everything that happened. Uh, I try to live my recovery out loud because um, what you see is what you get and you like it or you don't. And I really don't care anymore, you know? (laughs) Um, But what led me was I have um, a bulging disc and arthritis in my lower back and where I had two C-sections, they had to give me a spinal with my son and it kind of really, really irritated it. And that's when my like addiction fully took force. But uh, before that, um, my dad's a drug addict. My mom's an alcoholic. Um, I started using when I was probably 15, and it was recreational. You know, I would drink here and there at parties at school, um, smoke weed, uh, did whippets. Uh, when I was 18, I started doing ecstasy. Um, 
it, but that was like here and there. I drank pretty much every weekend from the time I was 18 until I got clean. Um, but everything really kind of took off with the opiate addiction when I got that prescription for, for, um, pain pills for my doctor. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that's just when everything, I mean, within six months, I was feeding 45 Percocets in three days and I mean, they were at my disposal. So, you know, the high eventually wears away. And so I was just eating more and more of them until I went from eating them to snorting them from and on up the chain. Um, I eventually went from Percocets to methadone to opanas to heroin. Um, and I didn't shoot heroin at first. It was probably six months of usage before I started shooting. And then I started mixing the cocaine and Xanax and everything else with it. But really, my drug of choice was the heroin and the cocaine um, and alcohol. I, I should have died uh, several times over um, during my active addiction. Um, I mean, there was one night that I had probably done alone by myself in the four hours at the strip club that I worked at probably half a gram of heroin, a gram of Coke, and still did um, 18 double shots of Southern Comfort with Red Bull within a four-hour period. Uh, I should have died that night, and I didn't. Um, and I realize now that I've been as clean as long as I have. I say clean because I'm not anything in my system, but in my recovery. But now that my mind is clear, um, I figured out what my purpose was and I realized that's why I didn't die during any of those times. I had a purpose that I needed to fulfill. And part of that is helping the recovery community. Um, and I'm, a, I believe with every ounce of me, that's what my purpose is. Oh, amazing story. It really is an amazing story. Um, what? <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's not with how far you've come in such a short amount of time. It's amazing that you've not only managed to heal yourself, but then you've gone, you know what, I'm meant for bigger things and I'm now going to help the recovery community. I mean, I guess it comes from the best place possible, doesn't it? Because you've yeah. been there. What about um, your children? So did they, you said nobody really knew this was going on. Do they know now? Do, they, do you hide it from them? Oh, yeah. My kids know everything about... Um, they know that I was a stripper. They know that I used to be an escort. Um, we don't hide anything from them because we lied for so many years. Now we're just brutally honest about everything. There's no reason to hide. You know, we did it long enough. Um, and I feel like that's a good inspiration in my daughter, especially with her being 15. Like she has friends that smoke weed and she's just, she must have nothing to do with it. And I appreciate the fact that they respect that. Um, so she doesn't hang out with a lot of her friends as much as she used to now that they smoke weed, but they also know she doesn't like it. Um, so when they're having like a party or something, they'll mention it to her, but they'll be like, just so you know, we're going to be smoking or we're going to be drinking and she'll, she'll just be like, well then, uh, I won't be there. So good. I, just I mean, they've seen us climb from the depths of hell and pull ourselves out of that pit and get back to where we are. Um, and I feel like if that's going to be any kind of inspiration to stay clean, that's going to be it. I think that's it. You know, um, your story has actually really blown me away, if I'm honest. I'm based it. Um, and I've never, ever got emotional in one of our podcasts. And I feel really emotional speaking to you. And, and I've not even had any of like the, oh. like, the bad stuff. Oh. Oh. 
my rock bottom, like it gets way more emotional than that. I was going to ask you about that, but just like when you said before about when people before recovery, they don't think they're worth it. Um, you know, you're living proof that everybody is absolutely worth it. I just think you're such an inspiration and you've made me really emotional. But what? <laughs> you're nearly crying. I don't know. It's proper made me really emotional, yeah. I give you a tissue if I were closer. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what was it that brought you to recovery that you the know, rock bottom yeah, yeah. talk about your rock bottom I don't bottom. know whether I want you to and that's why I was hesitant I've, I've got her don't worry Christy I've got her <laughs> okay I trust you to make sure she stays okay <laughs> um well my husband and I used for 10 years um and about six months before we got clean he had been saying that he felt like something bad was gonna happen and he was ready to get clean and I just wasn't there um, I knew in order to get clean, we had to come down to Galpless where I live. Um, my family's down here. I hate this town. It's like going back in a time machine, like 20 years, nothing's changed at all. Um, it, I feel like they just got high speed internet. Like that's how bad it is. Um, <laughs> and like it was Valentine's day of 2013. Um, I remember everything as if it was just yesterday and it's been seven years. Um, we had um, an anti-love party at the strip club I worked at and it's called Leather and Lace. And so before I went that night, I prayed. Um, I was like, Father, if I'm meant to get clean, I won't make any money tonight. But if I'm supposed to continue using and I'm supposed to continue living this life, then I'll make money. All right, we'll make that deal. And I went off to the club. Um, I made about $400 that night. And obviously the strip club, you have all kinds of good boys that come in. So I had my drugs. I had my money. I was set to come home, had um, a guy because I was turning tricks at the time as well. Um, at the strip club, they call it takeout and you pay extra, um, tip the bouncer extra high, you know, that stuff. Yeah. And so this guy said that he had to drop his friends off. Obviously an active addiction, you're a greedy person for the $400 I made just wasn't good enough. Um, I'd be able to get more drugs, obviously, if I had more money with my mindset. So he had his friend in the back seat, and he said that we had to take drop his friend off first. All my stuff was on the floor of the front seat. I was in the front seat. Um, we get back into this neighborhood. I knew I don't know where I'm at. Um, it's probably about 3 o'clock in the morning. And he asked if he could use my cell phone. So I start, I lean forward, and I start looking for it. I had my phone and my, my husband's. One of ours was broken. Um, all the stuff for work, uh, my clothes, my shoes, my, uh, all my makeup, my hair stuff, my purse, my wallet with my social security card, both my kids' social security cards, my ID, both cell phones, my drugs. And now I'm in a winter, obviously. And so all of a sudden the light comes on and I asked him, I was like, why is the light on? And he said, I turned it on so that you would be able to find your cell phone better. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, we get over to this neighborhood and we get up to a stop sign and all of a sudden I get shoved up our door and we take off. Um, and I look around and I'm like, oh my gosh, where, where am I at? And I notice some lights off in the distance. So I walk over to where the lights are and it was like a shopping center. There's Burger King there, all kinds of people in the drive through So I walked up to the first car that had a window down and I said, hey, I just got robbed. Um, 
can I use your phone? And they said, yes. So I called the person that we were staying with because at this point we were living in a hotel and got kicked out of the hotel um, because we couldn't pay for it. And I was living, we were living with a friend. And so um, I call the friend's phone number and I talked to him and I talked to my husband and my husband's like, I'm just, I'm just glad you're okay. You could have been dead in a ditch somewhere. And um, I said, I know, I'm so sorry. I lost all the money. Like we're not going to be able to get high. You know, we're going to be sick in the morning. I'm sorry. And he's more concerned about the fact that I could have died. And I was more worried about the fact that we weren't going to have drugs tomorrow. Um, So I get off the phone with them and I talk to the person who is in the car and I explain to them, I don't know where I'm at. Um, I have no way to get home. They were like, well, the bus comes in here in about three and a half hours. And if you walk five miles down the road that way, that's where the bus stop is. And they gave me $10 and I started walking. Um, I get up to an area where I start to recognize where I'm at and I'm back where the strip club is. Um, and I notice one car leaving the parking lot and it happens to be the bouncer that I normally ride home with. So I run across the road screaming, waving my hands, trying to get his attention. Um, and he notices me and I get in the car and I explain to him what happened. And so they stop, let me get cigarettes and they take me home. I woke up the next morning and um, I called my dad and I said, dad, um, I'm, I need help. Um, I'm not going to be able to do this by myself. We need to come down there and um, I, I need your help. And so um, that was on the 15th that I called. We got up the very next morning, got one last cap of heroin. Both of us did it, loaded up the car, drove down to my dad's house and quit cold turkey. Um, that was my spiritual awakening because like I said, I had made a pact with God that if I made money, then I would continue. And if I didn't make any money, I would quit and I made money, but I lost it. And I almost lost my life in the process. And so I did just that. And I, I honored that pact that I made with him and I got clean. So amazing. I feel emotional now as well. It must be so (laughs) strange for you telling that story because you've come such a long way. So to look back, does it, is that like telling the story of somebody else? Can you believe that was you? No, I mean, I know it was me. Um, (laughs) I do have a lot of people that I work with who, uh, have known me since I got clean. Um, like back in September, I celebrated one year at a place at McDonald's where I work at. It was like, oh, I'm a real person. Oh, you know, I'm a real job. And I got one week paid vacation. And like, they don't know that version of me. And I post recovery stuff all the time on Instagram and on Facebook. And um, I had one of the girls who was like, Christy. And I said, well, yeah. She said, like, could you? I want some people on Facebook that said you did. Did you really do that? And I said, yeah. She was like, wow. I would never think that. I'm like, oh, Barbie, honey. Like, there's a lot more you know, you don't know about me that I did. And if that little bit of stuff surprises you, like, I, I don't even want to get started on everything that I've done because that would really throw you for a loop. But, you know, yes. And she was like, oh, she was like, well, I won't look at you any different. I said, well, I mean, that's good because I'm not a different person. <laughs> yeah. Now that you know, I'm still me. You just, everybody has a past. I just did a lot more shady things than what you did. <laughs> Do you find there's a stigma attached to your recovery at all? Um, 
Well, because I do live my recovery out loud and I will tell anybody and everybody that I'm a recovering addict, um, I feel like there's not so much a, a stigma with me, but for a lot of other people, yes. There is a huge stigma in the recovery community. A lot of the people, um, there's a guy who is a customer who's regular. I'm friends with him and he almost appreciates me more because he was, he's like, you know, addiction is a hard thing and not everybody makes it, you know, he's like, man, you're doing an amazing thing with your life. Not only are you in recovery and you have a job and you're doing what you're supposed to, you know, he's like, but I saw my sister struggle and that was just with alcohol. Like you've done way harder things, you know? So it's almost like he appreciates me more. And if I ever would need help, you know, with anything, um, I know that he would be right there with me. Uh, just uh, right before summer, he last year, he uh, he gave me a brand new grill because he got one and his was like two years old and he knew we didn't have a grill and we couldn't afford it. And he just gave it to me and then he went and bought a whole um, propane tank for it as well because he was getting one and he just gave it to me Aww. because he knew that I wanted to grill out with the kids this summer. Like I have people that do nice things like that for me because, you know, a lot of people who are in recovery don't really talk about it because they're ashamed of what they've done. Yeah. Um, and a person they used to be. And it's almost like I don't have that stigma attached because not only am I not afraid to share that I'm a recovering addict, but I will tell you anything and everything you want to know. Yeah. I shot up dope. Yeah. I shot up heroin. Yeah. I used to be a thief. I used to be an F a prostitute. I used to be a stripper, but you know what? I'm a different person now. That's the old me. That's not the new me. And with recovery, you get a whole new you. And, you know, um, I have a, a good spiritual foundation that a lot of people don't have. Um, I don't classify myself as a Christian or any of that. Um, I do believe in a higher power. Um, but the reason I'm spiritual is because I, I'm not like other Christians where I'm not judgmental. Um, I don't judge people. I know that we all sin and I'm not going to be like, oh, you're going to hell or none of that because I have no right to judge anybody. Not with my past, not with the things that I've done or the person I used to be. I have no right to judge anybody. If anything, um, part of my recovery is to lift those people up because those are the ones that need it the most. Yeah, definitely. I'm gobsmacked. I'm absolutely gobsmacked. You just, I think you're amazing. I, I can't even think of any other words. I just think you're amazing to have gone through all that journey, to be so open, so honest, and put yourself in such a vulnerable position by speaking publicly. I think is incredible and you should be, I'm sure you are, but you should be massively proud of yourself. It takes a it took a long time for me to become proud of myself um, because I just felt like I was doing what I was supposed to do. But then I've started noticing other people in the recovery community um, who are as outspoken about things, um, who are as willing to share. Um, like, I have no reason to be ashamed of anything I did. I mean, if I could go back, would I make different decisions? Probably not because I wouldn't end up where I'm at. And I felt like I needed to go through those trials and tribulations in order to become the person who I'm supposed to be and to find out what my purpose is. So I have no reason to be ashamed of it. I did it. Point blank. That was, you know, what's the point of being ashamed of it now? I wasn't ashamed of it when I was doing it. I definitely don't need to be ashamed of it now that I'm no longer that person. 
I think that's amazing and you're right there is absolutely nothing to be ashamed of and I think more and more people out there I wish more and more people had the strength to talk like you do about it because it would help in removing the stigma you know it absolutely would them and us or poor them or you know this that's been your life and you're just helping people which is just amazing what do you look after yourself christy now do you like what kind of things do you reward yourself with now um what do you mean self-care self-care oh oh um i still have I still struggle with people pleasing where I put other people first, but I have learned how to say no. Yeah. Um, and I used to also have an issue with perfectionism. And so I did not take um, criticism or if I was doing something wrong and somebody would point it out, so I'd be doing a better job. I used to not take that very well at all. Um, I realized that there's no such thing as perfect. Even if you bought a pencil brand new out of the package, it's still going to be flawed a little bit. Um, so I listen to a lot of music. I dance around like a crazy person. My poor neighbor, he listens to me sing off key out of tune, wailing. Anytime I'm in the bathroom getting ready, taking a shower, um, I sing and dance and I'm cooking. Um, I live miserable for majority of my life and, um, I choose now to be happy and if singing dancing around like an idiot makes me happy then so be it i mean everybody at work enjoys me i'm on medical leave right now from shoulder surgery and um i went in the other day and everybody's like oh my gosh oh, and i didn't think i made that much of a difference but i'm always the one when they're stressed out who's who will just start dancing randomly for no apparent reason whatsoever and i don't care if anybody sees it you know I'll start singing and dancing and I want to be able to enjoy things. I don't want to be miserable. I don't want to be stressed out. I mean, I still get stressed and I still have bad days, but um, I have the ability to choose whether or not I'm happy now. And I do that. So you're either going to be happy with me or you're just going to laugh at me and think I'm stupid. And either way, I don't really care. Yeah, that's <laughs> such a good attitude. I remember, um, after you know going sober for quite a while and dancing in my kitchen and my youngest daughter coming in and, and we do it we have dance-offs even now in the kitchen and, I've do, seen them. and do like <laughs> ridiculous things and these are things that maybe I would have done when I'd had a few drinks with her and then forgotten about it and been like don't wake me up the next day whereas now we do that and we have so much fun together I just would have never my daughter's always that. like Mom, you're so inappropriate. Yeah. And I'm like, well, that's me. Sorry. But it's I, nice to be inappropriate now <laughs> without the girl right. anything else, isn't it? It's yeah. like, yeah, I'm inappropriate and I don't really care. <laughs> right. I think she doesn't like the fact that her friends like me. I'm like the cool mom. Um, she doesn't like the fact that I'm like hip with all of like the new sayings the kids say. Um, I have TikTok on my phone and she was like just absolutely floored and appalled um, <laughs> at the Christmas TikTok. party <laughs> me and one of the guys that I work with danced and we're just being goofy and he dipped me and we fell and we laughed and had a good time and later that night she was like mom did you know that somebody put a video of you on Snapchat of you and Carson dancing and I was like okay <laughs> she was like that's disgusting. I said, you were literally there watching all of it. Like, what? She was like, 
yeah, but everybody can see it. I was like, everybody that's friends, but they're so what? Like, I've done way worse things. Trust me. Than just dancing <laughs> yeah, and having a good time. Just sober at a Christmas party. <laughs> like, this oh, well. Fun. <laughs> yeah. Right. I'm like, then don't watch it. <laughs> like, it doesn't affect your life. It affects mine. So why do you care? Like, focus on your own stuff and don't worry about what I'm doing. If I want to have a good time, so be it. It doesn't affect you. So what if you're embarrassed? Trust me, I could be way more embarrassing. <laughs> Go to school at what time? And I'll have half my hair in rollers, my makeup all smeared, and a nightgown that looks like my grandma wore, and house slippers, and be screaming your name on the front steps. Like, try me. <laughs> I have no shame at all. <laughs> and she gets really flustered and mad and like storms off because she doesn't affect me. Oh, you just said you did, um, well, earlier you were talking about how you're now a qualified therapist and you do other work. Not yet. I'm in the process of getting my certification. Oh, okay. So, so you, you are becoming a qualified therapist, but you do a lot of other support work already. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that is and how people can contact you? Um, I am on Facebook and my husband and I have a Facebook page that we do called The Addicts Family. Um, we post recovery and inspirational recovery uh, pictures and posts every day. Um, my husband starts off with morning fam or afternoon fam, um, evening fam. It's always family because I feel like in the recovery community, that's kind of what we are. Yeah. An extended family that you didn't know you had. Um, <laughs> and uh, on there, you have direct contact to be able to message us. Um, we respond pretty much as soon as we get it. Most of the time, it could be within five minutes. Sometimes it may be a half hour, an hour, depending on if we're at work. Um, but one of us always responds. And um, usually, if you respond down there, if you need, like, I'll have somebody who specifically wants to talk to me, and I'll have them add me on Facebook and then message me directly. Mm -hmm. um, as far as, like, the support, um, I build people up i try to be kind uh i do the next next right thing even when no one's watching um i try to be kind to everybody and do little random acts of kindness all day long um because you never know what the other person's going through so i try to be like a positive influence and a light a source of hope that a lot of people don't have um the person i was talking about earlier the last person i got into treatment um he tried everything to push me away. You know, oh, don't worry about me. I'll be fine. I'm like, no, you won't. Because I know where you've been, you know. And I, you can't shake me off easily. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to give up hope on anybody. So even if they've given up hope on themselves. Um, so I pretty much just bug you and aggravate you and remind you regularly that you matter, whether you think you do or not. Um to the point of almost being annoying but uh sometimes that's what people need i think that's and because that little nag in the ear. you you know that it's really difficult i think if you've not been in that situation to define when somebody does need your help or they really just not you know they don't want to do it but i mean i suppose if they've reached out to you in the first place that's them asking for that help isn't it yeah pretty much and like with Tristan it was just random um he happened to comment on one of my posts that I put 
And he was like, I'll repost this, but I'm not putting a picture. And I was like, why not? And he was like, all oh, people hate it. Who cares? Let them hate. Like, post it if you want. And he randomly messaged me and told me he was an active addiction. And that's how that whole thing started. Like, he didn't even, like, really reach out. He was just commenting on a post. And, um, you know, he's like, I'll just have too many people get angry. And I'm like, who cares if they get angry? That's on them. Nothing to do with you. Yeah. You know, if you want to post it, post it. So what if somebody gets angry? That's a problem with them themselves. That's not a problem they can do. And a lot of people don't realize that it's, you know, yeah. When you're using and your family has gotten hurt or been upset, I feel like a lot of the times the reason why they cut you off is because they're trying to do that tough love thing. But I also think they're trying to distance themselves because they're scared they're going to lose you. Yeah. It's a lot easier. It's a lot easier for them to deal with not being right there witnessing all of it and watching you die because, I mean, they don't know what to do. They don't know how to handle it um, because they've never been through it. So they think in order to make it easier on them, they'll just cut you off and they'll let you do your thing. And, you know, because they're scared they're going to lose you. And like, that's not a problem within that person. Yeah. I mean, they have a problem with drugs and alcohol, but that's more of like the family member themselves. I have a brother who's incarcerated. I've never given up on him. I've said a lot of things he doesn't want to hear, but I've never given up on him. What would you say, Christy, to a family member who, you know, somebody close to them is in addiction right now? How how can they reach out and help? Um, well, nobody's going to get help until um, they're ready to get help. You can't force anybody into recovery unless they want it themselves. Um, and it's a hard road. It's, it's tough on everybody around because addiction is not an individual disease. It's a family disease. Um, but my biggest advice is don't give up on that person. Don't turn your back because that hopelessness is going to make it worse. And if they don't feel like they have a support system, that's going to make their addiction skyrocket even more. Um, yeah, it's going to be hard to watch your family member go through that, but there's going to be a time where they reach out and if they feel like they don't have anybody to reach out to, they're not going to be reaching out to you. So you're never really going to be able to help them if you don't stay right there with them. You can distance yourself and definitely do not enable anybody. Um, But if an addict is not angry with you, then you're doing something wrong. If that addict in your family that you're watching go through addiction thinks you're the best person in the world, then you're enabling them and you're not not doing the right thing. If they're mad at you, then you're doing something right. My brother has chewed me more times than I can imagine when he was using. And every time he called, I picked the phone and I always told him what he didn't want to hear. You know, he was like, oh, I called it any time. I was like, set every drug addict ever. Try again with somebody else that doesn't know what's going on. Yeah. And they're done that. Talk to the wrong one. And you know, I never turned my back. I never gave up hope. I always made sure that he knew that no matter what, I would be right there. And I would tell him everything that he did not want to hear. But it's stuff that he needed to hear. And now that he's incarcerated and he's clean, he's like, yeah, you used to make me angry a lot. <laughs> but I wouldn't love you any other way. I expect no. that out of you. 
and, it's and I've so shared a that that fine line like you said between kind and, and, kind and, yeah. and being cruel to be kind at the same time yeah. without, without abandoning someone yeah and it's that is difficult it's just like you said before it's it is family disease it's, it's difficult for everybody in that situation isn't it and that's why like if you have somebody who's an active addiction in your family it's really really smart to educate yourself yeah. try to figure out and learn as much about addiction as you possibly can because the more you know the more you're going to be able to help that person you know, education really is key. And that's a lot of why I do what I do and why I'm so outspoken about what has happened to me and the fact that I'm in addiction because I feel like education is one of the smartest things that anybody could do when it comes to addiction. Definitely. There's plenty of resources out there. You can talk to pretty much anybody in the recovery community and they'll help educate you on addiction. I'm writing a book right now called The Mind of an Addict. Um, it dives into, um, I'm on there and start chapter three. And the beginning part leads up to, oh, I was doing this. And unbeknownst to me, my new love was eventually going to destroy my life. And I continued down this path because I didn't know where it was going to lead. Yeah. And it's now to the point in the book where um, I start truly getting addicted. And I want them to be able to see and read the thought process of everything that goes on in an addict's mind so that they can kind of understand a little bit more about having to physically go through it. I think that's brilliant because that it, that's the thing, isn't it? When you've, not, yeah. when you've not been there and you don't know, you don't have an understanding of the mind. All you can do is try and guess. And your reasons, are, you know, to somebody that's not in addiction, it's like, well, just stop. <laughs> just stop doing it. <laughs> no, like, yeah, right. Right. Well, right. right. <laughs> I mean, you chose to get high. You should be able to choose not to get high. Yeah. My grandma used to tell me all the time, like, oh, you know, just waiting for the shoe to drop once I got clean. And I'm like, I feel like you're just waiting and pushing and, and poking until I eventually relapse. And so you can take the picture like, oh, this is going to happen. I'm like, the joke's on you. It's not going to happen. Oh. Um, and it never did. And um, she's like, well, your aunt, she's sick. She has a mental disease. And so, you know, that's why she does this. And I was like, she can get medication. Oh, there's no medication for that. I was like, well, addiction is a disease too. And you don't see me using that as an excuse to go get drunk or high. Yeah. Like you expect me not to use because you don't look at it the same way, but it is. And it's a genetic thing. The more I'm reading into the courses that I'm taking, like it's a genetic thing. So I'm glad my kids know about my addiction because they know they have a predisposition to to um, being highly addicted to something, you know? So it, when they do get older, if they start drinking and stuff, they know to kind of watch what they're, what's happening and limit themselves because they could easily become addicted just like anybody else. Yeah. yeah. You know, I didn't grow up as a little girl. I was like, oh, one day I can't wait to be a recovering drug addict. Or, yeah. you know, I can't wait until I, I, I have to live 24-7 with a needle in my arm. That's never what I wanted to be when I grew up. I wanted to be a mom. Yeah. Mom. That's all. You are. And I ended up being a lot more than that. In an amazing example for your children. <laughs> Before we finish up, Christy, first of all, do you want to say anything else? And second of all, what top tips can you give somebody who's just starting out a journey to either sobriety from alcohol or sobriety from drugs? Well, um, like I said, I have to... Uh, do a lot of forgiving and let go of a lot of the resentment. Um, I I have complex PTSD, um, so a lot of my childhood is blocked out. 
And I used to be scared to get clean because I was worried about what my mind was blocking out. And once I got clean, I would have to come face to face with that. Yeah. And I always had this fear that my dad, because I was molested as a child, but I can never see my abuser's face. Um, I could always remember in detail what happened, but never the face of the person. Um, and when I was in treatment, I, even though I can't remember seeing my dad, I know in my heart, I mean, you just know, you know, I know that my dad was the one that did it. And I, he allowed my stepmom to beat me for 10 years. Um, and I was kidnapped from my mom, told me that she didn't want me, um, told me that I was told I had to deal with what my dad did and how he treated me because at least he wanted me. Um, a lot of that all came to surface when I first got clean. Um, and so I had a lot of problems with feeling like I was inadequate, uh, feeling like I was never good enough in my dad's eyes. And if you have issues with a parent from when you were a child, any kind of like abuse issues, whether it's physical, verbal, mental, sexual, because I have a four. Um, so, you know, at least when you know I say this, I say it because I know for a fact this is what is going on and this is what happened. Um, a lot of a lot of recovery is a lot about soul searching and figuring out what makes you happy. And part of something I had a hard time with was um, forgiving people that I felt like didn't deserve the forgiveness. Um, and it wasn't for my dad. I don't have a relationship with him and I have for a while. Um, he doesn't know that I forgave him. He doesn't need to know that I forgave him, but I did it for me because it was still making me sick. Um, and I prayed uh, that God would bless him with everything that I wanted for myself in my life. Um, and that helped let go of that resentment. Um, but one of the hardest things was realizing that that father that I wanted and that I should have had is I'm never going to get. Um, I can't look at him the way that I used to uh, because I always looked at him in that child mindset like, well, that's my dad. And I want him to be this kind of father and he's never going to be that no matter how much you want that. Yeah. So you have to kind of look at any relationship with a parent from the adult perspective instead of that childlike perspective. Um, and as an adult, I don't expect him to be any different than what he already is. He has his own battles that he's dealing with and his own demons that he's fighting. And no matter what, I would never be able to hurt him as much as he's hurting himself. So I let go of that power that he had over hurting me. And um, that has helped quite a bit with me being as happy as I am now. And being able to have that passion and want to help other people because, I mean, I'll be the first one to tell you, forgiving somebody and letting go of those resentments is hard. I cried for three days like a sobbing baby. He would look at me and I would start bawling for no reason whatsoever than to just feel it. Yeah. I had to let that out. I had to feel it. I had to cry. I was always told that crying was a form of weakness. And I'll be the first one to cry now. You know, I'll cry in front of anybody. I don't care. Um, probably I will because, <laughs> because you know I'm the one that has to deal with it nobody else does you know I had a hard time with learning how to love my dad I felt like he didn't deserve it um, and yeah he was abusive and yeah he wasn't a good father um, he taught me how to be a great mom because he taught me how not to be a parent so as long as I didn't do anything he did I was going to be an amazing mother um, 
And it doesn't matter if I'm not good enough in his eyes. I'm good enough in my own eyes. And I know that what I'm doing makes a difference and it it's important. And no matter what I do, he'll never be happy because it's not something with me. It's with him. Yeah. Um, and so I had to learn to disconnect myself from those thoughts. Um, another thing is uh, don't be afraid to reach out if you're struggling or if you feel like you think the best possible thing you can do is talk to somebody about it. Um, I also learned to play the tape through, um, which doesn't make a lot of sense. I have struggled with, like once, um, my daughter was touched inappropriately during band camp by a senior kid and she was in eighth grade. And that was one of the hardest things for me because, uh, and I'm probably going to cry. Um, because it happened to me so i felt like i kind of let her down um crying. i never wanted her to go through that i never wanted that to happen to her and um it was a whole new set of emotions that i had never dealt with yeah. um since i'd gotten clean and everything in me wanted to go drink but i had to stop and think i mean i was on probation i'm not on probation anymore i also graduated from my od counseling within 24 hours of each other um but I had to think like, okay, look, yeah, I know you want to get drunk right now, but if you get drunk, what's going to happen? <laughs> you're going to get drunk. You're going to walk all over town looking for this kid. You're going to break every bone in his body. You're probably going to do a lot of other things than drink. You're going to end up in jail and you're going to go away to prison for three years. And that's not going to fit anybody. And everything you worked hard for, you're going to throw out the window. And it's just not worth it. Um, since then, I have forgiven the kid. Because he does show a lot of remorse. Um, and I had to let him know. Like he would come into McDonald's. And see me after this happened. When I was still quite angry with him. And his friends would be like. I'll make sure you don't say. Or he'd you know, be like don't say my name. you know, And try to hide. And I would go over. And I would purposely make a point to stand beside him. So that he knew at all times. I was everywhere and anywhere. Yeah. Even when he wasn't expecting it. Because that was my child that he hurt and I knew if I took it to court or if I tried to press charges it would end up hurting her more yeah and it didn't seem to bother her as much as it did me and so I had to remind myself to, like look this is her life it's not mine and yeah it upsets me but if it's not hurting her all I'm going to be doing by reacting is hurting her and if this doesn't I don't want to be the one that does um so I forgave him and um now he's very careful and it kind of opened her eyes up to things that she needs to watch out for. Um, and I was really proud of myself because uh, I played that tape through when I was like, yeah, I can stay here and be supportive and help her or I can go get drunk and beat this kid up and then go to prison. I mean, if you weigh out the options, it's definitely a way smarter choice not to use. Um, you know, and like I said, I recently had shoulder surgery. Um, I talked to the doctor about being in recovery. He did prescribe me for sets. And uh, I have three downstairs. Um, I stopped using them when the pain wasn't necessary anymore. Yeah. Um, I went through the withdrawals. Never once picked one of them up because I have made it up in my mind that I'm not going to relapse. Um, I took them as prescribed even when the pain was intense. Um, and that was a big deal. You know, I'm, I mean, I have literally three birds that sitting downstairs 
and I've not even been inclined to use them. I'm saving them for when I go back to work if I really, really need it. And if I don't need it, I'm probably going to give that to the doctor or take them to the pill drop that they have at the sheriff's office. Um, and for the fact that I was addicted to opiates, it says something about what happens once you do that soul searching and you let go of those and figure out what that underlying issue is that has caused you because drug and alcohol is not the problem. It's a solution to the problem in your eyes. And there's some underlying issue that is causing you to want to have to self-medicate. And in order to really recover and to get through that, you need to figure out what those underlying issues are and you need to work on them. Um, that's why I said you need to do a lot of soul searching and it's hard. It's going to be tough. Oh, it's hard. But it's definitely worth it once you get through it. You have, um, this has been our most heartfelt and emotional podcast <laughs> experience. We're both, I've got, every time you say things, like I'm getting goosebumps on my arms, I'm getting tears in my eyes, and then I feel happy and proud. And I just think you're amazing. And I just, from my perspective, want to say thank you so much for being honest and open and for just sharing such a vulnerable story with us. It's just incredible. Well, it's more people need to do it. It's my pleasure to be able to share that with people because it shows that I'm human and I make mistakes, but it doesn't define who I am. The thing is as well, Christy, as hard and as awful as the things that you have been through, there's so many things that between myself and Alex can absolutely 100% relate to within your story. And I think by sharing that and being so brave to share it, it is really, really going to help people. And honestly, thank you so much. I'm really emotional. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, I'm really, really grateful. Thank you. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to come and share with you guys um, because, yes, in addiction and in recovery, we might not all have the same story, but we can always relate to something somebody says. Yeah. That's what the great part about sharing your story is. It will touch or reach somebody, and that's really all that matters. Absolutely. I can be vulnerable for a little bit if it's going to change somebody, if it's going to help somebody, if it's going to open someone's eyes. I can share that vulnerability with anybody. And I'm guessing that's not something that has come quite natural to you to show your vulnerabilities. You know, you're quite... You're tough. <laughs> you yeah. tough stuff <laughs> out you, so we're grateful for that. <laughs> it's it's definitely a learned um, thing. Uh, I was always scared to show emotion, but an emotion emotion's a wonderful thing. There are so many layers to emotions that yeah. like people just don't realize. And... Um, it's it's human to show emotion. So why not show every emotion that you can? I try not to show my anger side very much because yeah. uh, it can be quite scary. I'm <laughs> as hateful and angry as I can be nice, but I try to prefer to be nice. Um, and I mean, it's life. It's who you are. Me crying doesn't hurt anybody, so why not do it? I know it just being happy. Doesn't hurt anybody, so why not do it? Me being angry usually hurts people, so therefore, <laughs> yeah, do it. let's not do it uh, unless it's warranted. But um, even then, I I try to reel it in, you know, because like I said, you never know what the other person's going through. You don't know what they're struggling with. That's true, and I think it hurts that's... to be kind, it doesn't hurt to be nice, it doesn't hurt to be there and be supportive. 
doesn't hurt to build another person up. It helps more than anything. And that's a perfect end, really. It's a perfect ending, yeah. So thank you so much for being on our podcast, Christy. We really appreciate it. And please keep in touch. This is the only one where I absolutely hug you at the end. I'm like, lots of virtual hugs too. Thank you, Christy. Thanks very much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, guys. (laughs) 